When we're talking about living a truly free and independent life, we mean it. And that's exactly what Gary Collins, who is the creator of The Simple Life, set out to accomplish. And now you have a chance to learn all the secrets that Gary has developed over decades of trying it out himself, building these amazing courses, as you can go to thesimplelifenow.com and access three amazing courses, one being the Off the Grid Master Course, two being the how to finance your off-grid home course and three how to find your dream off-grid property course and get an awesome 10% off at checkout by using code TBNS10 that's right you too can learn how to live a truly free and independent lifestyle by living off-grid and all these amazing courses are delivered to you by yes one Gary Collins from the simplelifenow.com use code TBNS10 at checkout for 10% off your order and start living your free life today can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Wednesday, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. You guys pay attention to what's happening in New York? Like, Andrew Cuomo, the the, the S is going to hit the fan. The proverbial S, if you know what I'm referring to. Uh, which is exciting. And I said it because finally... People are starting to pay attention to just how terrible he is. This is something that our uh, good friend here in the show and personal good friend, Assemblyman Mark Walzik up in New York, has been focusing on with his kick the crown campaign. Because, number one, you look at Andrew Cuomo and he was approaching things through pretty much an authoritarian perspective. Uh, he wanted to have unilateral control over the state. And, and now... Folks are starting to realize, oh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Oh, maybe that led to quite literally thousands of nursing home deaths. How about that? So it's uh, it's interesting. Let's pay attention to what's happening up in New York. Uh, but what are you here for, folks? You're here for another phenomenal conversation. And yes, with another phenomenal guest. As today, I'm joined prof by Professor David Dozier. Now, uh, Professor Do uh, Dozier is joining The Brian Nichols Show uh, to discuss, number one, uh, that of criminal uh, punishment and how really it is such a backwards, archaic way to uh, look at the, the criminal justice system. And, and we've had uh, Hannah Cox and actually we're going to be having Hannah Cox from uh, conservatives concerned about the death penalty on the show again here in the, uh, the next few weeks. Um, but talking about how really there has been a, a change in this conversation, uh, not just on a national level, but across the world. So a uh, great conversation there, but also how we can have conversations from both the left and uh, and the right. Um, Professor Dozier is is much more uh, in the, the camp on the left and, and you know, yours truly coming from a libertarian camp. It's great, though, to, to show how we can have a, a civil dialogue and how actually it's super important that we're able to have this nice civil dialogue. So with that being said, on to the show, Professor David Dozier here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Dave, thank you so much for joining the program. And I wanted to give a special shout out before we got started to, uh, to Nick uh, Demio for getting us all set up here to uh, have you on the show. And partly because we're talking about a very, very, very important issue, especially here where we can actually maybe get some things done. And that is about the death penalty, right? Uh, I'm just saying before we get started, I'm having 
good friend of my show, uh, Hannah Cox. She's the head of the Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty um, organization. So this is a left-right, uh, I would say, issue that people are starting to come to some some agreements on. So, so Dave, let's kind of start off here before we dig into the death penalty. Let's introduce yourself to the audience, kind of what got you into it, into this world. I know you're, you're in public relations and media, um, but focusing specifically now on the death penalty. Well, I um, had a shall we say, an unusual childhood. When I was 15 years old, I had a next door neighbor uh, who uh, ended up becoming a uh, serial killer, a man by the name of Edmund Kemper. Uh, he was living with his grandparents um, out in a rural part of central California, which is where I grew up. And uh, he and I would get on the bus together. And in the winter, we would sit in the cab with his grandfather. And so I got to know his grandfather quite well, who was one of his first two murder victims, the summer between our freshman and sophomore year, uh, Edmund killed his grandfather and his grandmother, uh, was sent to the California Youth Authority, eventually released when he was an adult, went on to kill eight other people. Uh, and uh, uh, and so I had a, at a very early point in my life had to uh, deal with the fact that I, first of all, knew somebody that had murdered two people. And I also knew the two people he murdered. And uh, uh, I at that point, very early in life, uh, decided that I didn't believe in the death penalty. Interesting. So <laughs> your average person that's going to be approaching this conversation, I'm sure, is coming more from the right. And they hear those two thoughts and they're probably thinking, wait, you, you just saw somebody that you knew murder mm -hmm. his, you know, again, two people, you know, and eight people are in his life. And then you said, but I'm not for the death penalty. Rather, you're against the death penalty. So right. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, wait. Hold on, that's that's not the answer I was expecting to hear. Yeah. So, what was it about that that yeah. led you to not support the death penalty? Well, it um, it was a process that evolved over time. My reasons as a kid was that I I knew the murderer and I felt that he still had worth as a human being and uh, would uh, even with imprisonment could still be a productive member of society. Um, many decades later, uh, I was reading an article in the Los Angeles time, Times, and I, I wasn't paying attention to the name, but it was about a blind couple from the Midwest coming out to California to meet a man who at that time had recorded more books for the blind than anybody else, and he was in prison for murder. And uh, I finally realized, wait a minute, this, this, is, this is Edmund Kemper. This is the guy I knew when I was a kid. So, um, even a man who's a, a, a serial murderer uh, can contribute something back to society. Uh, but that's the moral argument, and it's not one that necessarily swings a lot of people. Uh, so there's a list of things that I think both liberals and conservatives can agree on. Uh, one of them is just the enormous cost of the death penalty, which is counterintuitive. You'd think that, well, you kill this guy, then we don't have to pay for keeping him in prison for the rest of his life. But uh, study after study shows, and in fact, it's just the opposite when you factor in the cost of doing a death penalty trial, all of the resources, legal resources that have to go into it, and all of the review, uh, uh, judicial review that's uh, up altogether appropriate, uh, it turns out to be an incredibly expensive uh, proposition. And I think for a lot of conservatives, that's, um, that, that's, that's an issue. Um, but there are other issues, I think, where libertarians get on board, which is basically if you, if you don't trust the government to run a, a single payer system, why would you trust the government to kill your fellow citizens? 
uh, it's an enormous overreach. And it was something that George F. Will in his column, uh, who's, uh, 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 I think, one of the best writers, uh, conservative writers in the country, uh, you know, put it quite eloquently when he said, you know, that there's lots of reasons why liberals are opposed to the death penalty. Um, but conservatives have their own reasons. And the big one is, is that uh, 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 the government is already altogether too full of itself. And investing it with the power to inflict death on anyone exacerbates its sense of majesty and its delusion of adequacy. Once again, George F. Will, much more articulate than me. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, I think, a conservative and libertarian sentiment that uh, it's an awesome amount of power to invest in the government. Mm, yeah, for sure. And one of the things I would like to uh, even dig in a little bit more, right, from my sales brain, I'm a sales executive by, by day trade. And one of the things we're focusing on when you're talking about sales is what's the conversation that people are having in their head right now. If I'm talking to conservatives, one of the things that they're talking about right now is cancel culture. That's the big thing going through conservative media. So let's talk about that, right? You know, if you're going to say in cancel culture, there has to be room for some type of redemption. You know, what's the pathway back to being a person again, right? That's, I think, the mentality that you could even take if we're trying to sell this idea of some pathway, yes, to some reintegration into the society. And even to your point, there are those who commit the most heinous of crimes, but there are opportunities for them to, you know, look for some, some chance for, you know, looking for getting their, their sins forgiven or, you know, trying to rectify it in some way, shape or form, whatever that may be. So that's interesting to the point that we can even make that argument from a moral standpoint based on what we're seeing happen right now with this idea of cancel culture for sure. Yeah, I think so. I think that, uh, what does cancel culture mean, uh, to people depends on where you fall along the political spectrum. Uh, because, uh, uh, certainly, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm a, to be, you know, straight with you about it. I'm a Bernie, uh, Bernie style Democrat. Um, and so I come at it from a, a, a different perspective, but, um, I do find it difficult when, um, folks like Abraham Lincoln are treated as, um, as part of that, that culture that, uh, uh, that, uh, we we tend to uh, look at the sins of people uh, in the past and uh, judge them harshly. Um, uh, I am a great great grandson of a Confederate veteran, um, so I grew up in uh, Southern values, even though they moved to California after the the Civil War. Uh, and 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 so I have an understanding of uh, uh, conservative thought. My father was on the Republican Central Committee in Madera County for many years. Grew up in a very conservative Republican family. Um, and I try to find areas where I think my dad and I could agree on stuff. He's usually the, he's passed away, but we have uh, conversations in my head where we try to find um, uh, places where we might agree. And I think that when we start talking about cancel culture uh, in, in this context, um, we need to be um, aware of the possibilities of all human beings to um, to become more than their worst acts, and uh, uh, and I think that's part of where uh, uh, where I hope that we can all find some common ground and get rid of the um, get rid of the death penalty. You know, we're one of the few uh, nations in the world that still practices the death penalty. Uh, there are 195 nation nation states in the world. And we're ranked sixth or seventh, depending on whose count you're looking at, uh, in terms of the number of people we put to death. Now, the good news is, is the number has dropped dramatically. 
in recent years, in part because the cost is so horrific. Um, and the other part of it is, is that juries are getting less uh, comfortable with imposing the death penalty. So prosecutors are looking at that and doing a, if you will, a cost benefit analysis, um, because it, it's a different ball game, uh, when you go for the death versus life imprisonment without any possibility of parole, uh, which is also an incredibly harsh sentence. Um, and most, you know, Western democracies would consider the ultimate penalty that the government should put on any of their citizens for their worst crimes. So I'm curious, and I play devil's advocate here because to your point, you're a a Bernie uh, supporter and and that's kind of the progressive ideas that you you support. I I think that's great because I don't really get many people on the show who are willing to come on the program and talk about that because one of the things I have trouble with is this kind of, in, in what we're talking about here, we're acknowledging the elephant in the room, that the state by and large is wholly inefficient at really doing anything. In this case, it's doing the the ultimate, in this case, act of, you know, ending somebody's life. So I guess, you know, we're looking at that and we acknowledge the elephant in the room that that is completely and wholly inefficient. So where do we, I say we as the libertarians out there, lose the folks more (laughs) on the left when we apply that now to socialized medicine or apply that to name government program here that while put in place to be this feel-good policy, we see the inefficiencies in place and maybe we don't see the, the outcomes that we would be wanting to see otherwise. Well, um, I worked for a state university for 37 years, so you don't have to talk me into um, believing or agreeing um, that we're talking about inefficiencies. Uh, and um, uh, my favorite line is that uh, when you look at a university, from a public university or a private university from the outside, uh, you, you can't believe how inefficient they are. When you get inside uh, a university, you can't believe how well they work, given uh, that everybody's a a paid amateur at doing all of the management functions within a university. Um, so I, I, I sort of go with uh, Winston Churchill's line about democracy, which is a terrible way to run a government, but it's better than all the alternatives. And for me, yes, uh, government is inefficient at a number of things that they do. Um, but at the same time, uh, compared to the alternatives, and this is where liberty Terrians and I might part company. Um, um, the market isn't the best way to settle all of our uh, social needs, concerns, and questions either. I think that uh, uh, I, I I feel very comfortable with a capitalist society that's um, that's regulated because I think that we can see the abuses of of uh, of, of capitalism, especially when um, we deal with situations where. Uh, businesses are operating like near monopolies, uh, oligarchies, um, uh, where there's not the benefits that uh, libertarians correctly point to, which is wealth in the uh, marketplace of goods and services. And when you've got competition, you get efficiency, you get innovation, you get new ideas. Um, and I believe that's true. Um, but there's a lot of areas where um, that gets squeezed out by very, very large corporations. Um, that um, simply um, um, aren't interested in any of those things. Um, they're interested on uh, uh, return for investors uh, and uh, and very often the customer uh, and society at large uh, gets lost in the shuffle. Um, so, but I, but I think that there's probably more areas than where we might agree than disagree. As a, I was a working journalist before I became a journalism public relations professor. Uh, and I tend to be a pretty um, belligerent libertarian when it comes to the marketplace of ideas. And so uh, I, I, 
I have trouble with uh, any uh, efforts to control freedom of speech. Now, where that naturally takes us, well, now what about, uh, uh, you know, what about Facebook and uh, and uh, what about Twitter? Well, um, as you probably know, those are private corporations. And uh, uh, I think most libertarians would have trouble with the uh, idea that the government can come in and regulate the content of information that's being provided by private corporations, which has been the story of uh, uh, story of the press in the United States uh, since uh, the early days of the democracy. We've always depended on a uh, fourth estate, which is not part of the government, independently owned and operated to uh, uh, provide ideas in a marketplace of ideas where conservative and liberal and libertarian ideas are exchanged. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's probably what we're missing right now because we've gotten down to sloganeering and uh, uh, making the worst of the other side and not realizing that, um, that there's a lot of good ideas that people that don't necessarily agree with you, a lot of good ideas that they have. Um, I've become quite a fan, by the way, of Reason Magazine uh, or online version of, of Reason uh, because it's really covering things that I, as a, you know, a Bernie liberal, um, wouldn't get if I depended strictly on um, uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post, which I subscribe to, or even the Wall Street Journal, which I also subscribe to. Um, they're just different ideas out there that you won't get unless you go outside of your comfort zone. And um, I, I, I think that's, and I'll speak to, if there's like five liberals listening to your program, I'll speak to them and say, get out of your comfort zone and take a look at some of the other ideas that are out there. You'll be much more informed about your own position if it has to compete with ideas from other people that have um, have intelligent uh, criticisms to make. Yeah, well, and right now, what we're seeing, and I would love to get your, your take on this, Dave, is these mainstream media organizations, uh, and let's look at, you know, I'll point out Brian Stelter, you know, CNN, uh, Don, Don Lemon, Chris Cuomo, and, and to the flip, you know, go to, go to the, you know, the alternative, go to the Fox News channel, the, the Newsmax, right? right? And you right. see there has been a push and I think there's been more and more of kind of this sentiment of accepting this on, I'd say, predominantly more of the, the politically leaning left to have these private companies, which, to your point, they have the right to do that. But then to to say, well, you should be cur curtailing certain speech. Is that a dangerous road to go down, especially when it's the journalists who are supporting the private companies kind of to silence the speech? And I ask that and I'll, I'll preface it with this. Let's rewind back to October, November, right before the election. New York Post was suspended on Twitter from publishing now what is confirmed to be a real story, but it was questionable how the information was obtained. That was the argument then, but that was a real right. story, a real journalistic, you know, uh, act was done to try and put the story out there and it was shut down by corporate media and it was actually encouraged to be shut down by journalists in corporate media. So is that a dangerous road? Yes. Uh, short answer, uh, slightly longer answer is that I think that as gatekeepers, journalists have to be very careful about um, the ways in which um, they step back from their own point of view and realize that um, different ideas need to be heard. Um, I think where the line is uh, and, you know, it's you know, you can probably see where this is going to January 6th. There's a difference between um, talking about um radical ideas uh, and um, encouraging um, mob violence. And of course, there's different takes on that. And 
you know, some folks say if you read the president's speech, he never really advocated violence. But in context, um, uh, my view, it, he, he definitely did. And Mitch McConnell and I, who never agree on much anything, also agreed on that. Um, so there's a difference between, you know, clear and present danger and imminent violence. Um, but anything short of that, including, you know, inflammatory speech and the Brandenburg principle, um, where it doesn't matter how, how how outrageous your speech is, as long as it doesn't result in uh, pretty much imminent violence towards people and property, then um, then it's uh, protected by the First Amendment. Um, and, and I think that that's something that we all need to be uh, cautious about. And frankly, it's 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 harder to do it for points of view that you agree with. You're more likely to cut more slack to something. Well, these people are basically right. So uh, I need to cut them a little bit more slack. Um, but, you know, there's times where, uh, uh, you know, you might recall the uh, New York Times uh, editorial page um, ran a column by a senator, a Republican senator that uh, caused a great brouhaha and, and, I thought it was altogether appropriate that they ran that. What, where, where, where it became problematic is when the editorial page editor admitted that he hadn't even bothered to read it. That's a problem. You know, when you're a gatekeeper, you ought to read uh, the stuff that appears on your own editorial page. But as far as the uh, content of that particular article, because it didn't lead to, you know, imminent danger for anybody under the standards of uh, Brandenburg, um, I thought it was altogether appropriate that they do that. And it's not like the New York Times has, you know, overdose of conservative columnists. Um, it's nice to hear different points of view. I think there's a very real lacking of understanding from folks on the left about how very under um, undervalued and under um, under discussed conservative or libertarian ideas are in the mainstream. To the point that they're not just not discussed, but they are labeled. And, and I think, you know, if we're looking back to the the January 6th conversation, this is also, I mean, where it does get dangerous because then you have John Brennan on, on TV and he just casually lumps in libertarians with white nationalists. And it's like, well, hold yeah. on. I'm a libertarian. I am not a white nationalist. I, I condemn that right. to the fullest, fullest extent. But he was so casual in his just tossing libertarians in there. And every libertarian's hand went up and said, hold up, this is a big deal. And I guess, you know, I don't think that there are folks in the media who realize that it's this casual, just always including just a little bit more of the people that you just don't want to, you know, include in the conversation. It does breed this resentment and it really, it breeds this distrust. So when you have, and I've had folks on the show, I mean, I had Ian Dunn on the show from the BBC, you know, as classically liberals, they come and he looked at Trump as a, a very big threat. But they they don't realize that when you look at somebody like a Trump, that the entire reason that Trump came to be is because he was the big middle finger to everybody who was just was, was not validating anybody else's experiences and and saying no your your conservative ideas they're dangerous we're not gonna have a conversation about that and they're saying okay fine you know what you think that my ideas are gross well I'm gonna give you the gross guy and and I think that leads to this detriment in terms of our conversation how do we have a political conversation when we're just constantly in our tribes going back and forth and yelling at each other instead of actually having the conversation so i mean as we're we're focusing i guess on building these common grounds dave let's i guess look at we're fast forwarding here uh you know we have three years before 2024 where we see the joe biden first term wrap up and i guess for libertarians on the team um or on the show rather um but uh, on the team as well um and then looking at you know the more bernie crowd where can we 
in your opinion, build some some common ground and build uh, you know some actual policy wins that both libertarians and the, the Bernie Bros out there can uh, can come to some some agreements with and uh, believe it or not, live in harmony. That's that's the stretch, and I think that uh, if I can uh, just you know rewind the tape just a little bit there, I think that the sense that um, people are being excluded uh, because they're not on the left uh, is perfectly natural. I often feel like as the, uh, as, as more liberal than, shall we say, the Clintonian wing of the Democratic Party, I think that that point of view gets way, way too much attention mm. uh, uh, at the expense of the more progressive ideas uh, from the, uh, what I call the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I think that that perception of, you know, who's under siege is very much a matter of where you situate yourself. And I think if you look at the media, um, uh, everybody should be dissatisfied uh, because there's the sense that um, that there, we're not really seeing the, the diversity of viewpoints that, that, that we need to see now. To, to get to your question, though, what about 2024 and you know, again, the 2022 election, which will also be substantive because there's a razor thin, razor thin Democratic majority uh, in both the House and Senate. And uh, that can change. Uh, and that radically changes, you know, what the possibilities are. So I do think that there are some areas where hopefully we can all get on the same bus. I think that COVID-19 is a... Uh, a special situation. And uh, I think this is a time for conservatives and libertarians to say, hey, look, this is like fighting a war. So yeah, um, if we pump $1.9 trillion into the economy, there's going to be some inflationary pressures. Um, but those aren't um, those aren't wartime conversations. Uh, and uh, I suspect it's probably uh, overblown, but we'll see. You know, that's an empirical question. Um, so I think that's one area where we could all get on the same bus. Um, I think also infrastructure. I think there's a lot of benefits um, to um, uh, both political parties and people along the uh, political spectrum to start putting together a lot of the broken pieces in our infrastructure, which I think we've neglected for some time. So I think there are areas where, where, where we can have, we have the possibility of a civil conversation. Uh, now, whether we'll do that or not is the, is the, 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 the challenge. And I think that that's that's what we're looking at is the ability to talk to other people that don't necessarily agree with you, but be respectful of their point of view. And I've by the way, I've done a number of of uh, 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 radio programs and, and podcasts where uh, with a few exceptions are mostly with conservatives and libertarians. And I've found every single occasion. Okay, maybe not all of them, but with one possible exception, every single one of them to be very comfortable environments where I can say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a, a Bernie style Democrat. Uh, and people can say, well, I'm a libertarian. You know, I've been a Republican all my life and we have a conversation and it turns out that, you know, None of us feel like, you know, infected uh, with some kind of political virus that, you know, rots our brain and all of a sudden I'm going to turn into a, you know, a, a, a Trumpian Republican or something like that. And I don't think that they're thinking that my words have, you know, turned them and their brains into jello either. So uh, I think we have an opportunity in a democracy and an, and an obligation. It's not just sort of, oh, it would be nice. No, you really have a job to do as a citizen in a democracy 
to discuss issues and think about them and realize that different points of view need to be considered, even if in the end you decide you don't agree. And get involved now. Don't get involved every four years. Like, I don't think people really appreciate how important local elections are. So if, to your point, you want the Democratic uh, wing of the Democratic Party to take control of your local Democratic Party, well, get the local activists involved. And to the contrary, if you want the libertarian wing of the libertarian party to get involved, well, then it requires you to get involved in your communities and start to focus on those local elections. Run for school board, run for dog catcher, I don't care. But it does start with us getting that resume built up and actually showing people that our ideas are more than just ideas. They actually help make people's lives better. So with that being said, there is a book and we want to make sure we point people the right way is the California Killing Fields of Professor David Dozier. Where can folks go ahead and find that if they're interested in learning more? Well, like everything else in the world, you can just Google it on, uh, go to Amazon and find it. But I also have a website and it's uh, daviddozierbooks.com. And my last name is spelled D-O-Z-I-E-R. It's it's French, so it had more vowels in it than it really needed. <laughs> but uh, Well, we'll make it easier uh, then. We'll include the link. Just so the folks out there can uh, make sure they just go ahead, click the link, find the books, and obviously find you. Now, we want to make sure that folks um, obviously are able to find the book, but also up to date. I'm sure social media links are included there as well. Yes. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, Professor David Dozier, thank you so much for joining the show. And obviously, we're talking about very important issues. Uh, and I think it, the conversation, it does kind of focus not just on... Um, the ideas of free speech, but also, to your point, beginning death penalty. And it does come down to the value of who we are as individuals. And I think that's where we can really uh, find a lot of common ground as we move forward. So with that being said, thank you so much for joining the Brian Nichols Show. And definitely have to have you on again in the future. Thank you very much. But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Okay, but what if you did want to get more coffee into your life? Well, good news for you, folks. We have a brand new sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show. It is one run-your-mouth coffee free speech. Never tasted so good. The hope is that the delicious roast-to-order coffee provides you with the fuel. Yes, you need to stand up to censorship and proudly run your mouth with amazing coffee to help you truly speak freely from 12-ounce bags up to 2-pound bags all of the coffee from the amazing Run Your Mouth Coffee is roasted to order after roasting delivery. It takes around two to five days, meaning that you will receive fresh roasted coffee made for you at peak flavor. And all coffee varieties are available both in ground and whole bean. From espresso yourself, speak freely, mind changer, pumpkin persuasion, and rebellion beans, Run Your Mouth Coffee has some delicious coffee just in store for you. And folks, if you are a listener of The Brian Nichols Show, you can use code NICHOLS at checkout and get 10% off your order. So head over to Run Your Mouth Coffee. Make sure you use code Nichols at checkout. Get 10% off your order and run your mouth today. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Professor David Dozer. Thank you, Professor Dozer, for joining The Brian Nichols Show. And if you guys enjoyed today's episode, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and share with family and friends. Of course, make sure when you do that, tag me at social media at B Nichols Liberty. You can find me over on Facebook, Twitter, Minds.com, and Parlor.com. And if you want to say hi, email me, Brian at Brian Nichols Show dot 
Com. Coming up here on Friday, we have Jack Hunter joining the Brian Nichols Show. A great conversation. Jack, obviously, uh, most known for his work on uh, Rand Paul's uh, campaigns, but also uh, his work in focusing on how we can bring these libertarian ideas, not just to the GOP, but actually into policy. So a great conversation uh, with Jack Hunter coming up here on Friday. So you know what that means. To make sure you don't miss Friday's episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button over on your favorite podcast catcher but also uh, while you're at it please do me a favor go ahead and give us a rating and review five stars over on your favorite podcast catcher Uh, i really really do appreciate every single review and i read every single one and actually come up here on friday we're going to go ahead and read some new reviews so make sure you get your reviews in on friday's episode but folks with that being said thank you so much for joining us here on another phenomenal episode of the brian nichols show so with that being said it's brian nichols signing off for professor david dozer we'll see you on friday Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.